This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Papa, go to work in the morning. Papa, gotta get it right. Mama, go to God in the morning. Mama, gotta get it right. Every time I see the president, I wanna take my pants. Just need 
Welcome, everyone. It's the second week of December. Yes, people, we have made it to week two of December of Waking from the American Dream. Uh, you know, it's it's getting closer now. If you haven't um, started that shopping or even thought about the list yet, it's going to get panic time. It'll be panic time this weekend. But don't go near the malls because, um, well, we know that's the fourth ring of hell is going to a mall during Christmas time. Uh, so, uh, but I hope, I hope things are going well. Uh, I know everyone in the country was freezing a few days ago. Uh, some places literally freezing. Uh, other places like us, we were doing our best to pretend like we were freezing. I, uh, I think it, it did get down into the forties and I did have to put on an extra scarf and jacket. Uh, but yes, we're still assholes here in Los Angeles completely. <laughs> And we're wusses and we're wimps and whatever. Fuck you. You people all want to move here anyway. I just always hope that on New Year's Day, when we have the Rose Parade, that it's, um, uh, you know, like uh, in the 50s. It needs to be in the 50s. If it's in the 70s or above on that day, you know the traffic in a year will be worse in Los Angeles because a lot of people will move here. And uh, and that's that's just unfair. Uh, so yeah, it's the second week of uh, December. Uh, I have no idea what's going on in the world. I would I would share with you something that's going on with the world, but um, I have no idea because um, I'm writing a book, and and you see when you write a book, you don't actually get to participate in the world anymore. It's it's a some sort of weird physics law thing. Uh, I, I don't I don't know exact the the exact theory underneath that, but. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I'm sure there's a, a lot of fascinating, important things going on out there, but um, <laughs> I, I don't give a shit. I really don't. It's all about page count, people, really. Uh, so uh, with that uh, theme, you know, kind of hanging over my head, uh, basically, it's my new life obsession. Um Okay, yesterday I did take the day off. I just want to say that I had some meetings I had to go to. And here's the thing, you know, you got you got some meetings to go to. So you're out in the world and, and then you think, oh, I'll have an hour in between those meetings. So I'll go to Starbucks and I'll bring my computer and I'll be able to get a work done. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. Uh, so yeah, nothing got done yesterday. And then today, earlier today, I, I went uh, to... Uh, tape the uh, the point with Anna Kasparian, which was great. Got to hang out with Lee Camp, who was on the show last week, uh, and then thought, well, I'll come home and I'll get... No, no, I had to prep for the podcast, so there's no... So tomorrow, tomorrow we get back to the book. Uh, but um, yeah, so I've uh, written an essay here. Uh, here's the other thing, too. I mean, and I'll talk about it. I'll talk about it now before I read the essay is, you know, I, I gave myself an assignment to write an essay every week for the show to keep up my writing and, and to add a new element to the show. And now, when it takes time for me to sit down and write the essay, all I can think of is, I really should be writing the other thing. <laughs> it's very complicated writing a book, uh, as you will see with my essay today. It's called Alone. The book writing has begun. You know what this means, right? Oh, you think you know. You're saying, well, Kelly, it means that you're writing a book. Words are being formed and being put on paper. <laughs> yes, silly. Well, we know that part. 
Oh, and if it were only that easy. Because what I have found, what writing a book really means, is that every nerve ending of codependency that is and has ever lived in this body has reared its sick little head and won't shut the fuck up. Jesus, you guys could have warned me a bit. I mean, yeah, I write an essay for the show here, or a new story for storytelling a few times a year. And yes, a few years ago, I did write a solo show. But for some reason, none of that clued me into the enormous amount of time-space continuum within my psyche I would need to write a book. I really get why people lock themselves in cabins in the woods. I really do. You see, if you tell people that you are in a cabin in the woods writing a book, well, then they don't expect you to be around physically, virtually, cyberly, or, well, any other kind of adverb you can think of to put in there. They know that you are alone in the woods with nothing more than pine trees, some canned goods, and your manuscript. You are living the Ted Kaczynski School of Book Writing. You are not available for the weekly canasta game, or someone's nephew's 12th birthday party, or the latest Kardashian crisis. Your do not disturb sign is on the door of your life, and you are not available. Now, you see... I am of that ilk, of that person who grew up in a family where my job was to maintain the equilibrium of the energy in the space between everyone. I was the designated diplomat, the live-in therapist, the family system whisperer. My job was to tap into everyone else's needs, calibrate my response accordingly, and then pour all of my resources into their dramas. And then, and only then, if there was some time and space left over, my needs could be attended to. That is, if I could remember what they were so late in the day. There was no, hey, let's rearrange the universe to fit your needs in my menu of choices. No, those choices were left to mom and dad. Well, mostly dad, because you see, he was doing the important stuff. He was being creative and impacting thousands of people with his words, and people were paying him lots of money to do that. And well, he's the dad, and it was the 60s and the 70s, and so his stuff always won. Cut to me today, where people are now paying me, yes, paying me a decent amount of money, (laughs) what a fucking concept that is, to be creative and impact thousands of people with my words. And well, dad is not here and mom is not here. And so my stuff gets to win. Which means that all of that energy that I used to put toward tamping down my needs to serve the needs of the collective, all that brain training I got that formed the Pavlovian response to the call of others' needs now has nothing to do except fling itself towards some vague someone out there who must absolutely need me stat and that I can't possibly attend to because, well, I have this book here that needs writing. And well, we're focusing on that. And then the guilt comes and the anxiety and the, well, you get the idea. It's like a huge ball of free-floating codependent guilt anxiety monster. Oh, how lovely. And it's all just in my head. All of it. I know that. I know. So, One thing I learned in my travels through my master's in Jungian psychology is this notion of individuation. This is where we pull away from the story, the needs, the gravitational pull of the collective to answer the urge of our soul, our psyche, our calling. For some, like my father, hear it at a 
young age. And although never simple or easy, they are able to be a shining example of one who stands against the flow to create something new, revealing, and revolutionary with their life. They know that they serve the collective through their active individuation. And I have known that finding my voice, putting my words to page, following my creative bliss has been the grist for my individuation mill. That claiming my space on page and on stage has been my way of learning to say to myself, you do get to be the focus of the universe. These words, these ideas, these stories. But fuck, I had no idea that the hardest part about writing my life story would not be in the writing, but in the retraining of my own mind. The undoing of the very training that occurred earlier in my life, the very experiences that creative my way of being that make up the very stories I'm now telling in the writing of this book. Do you get what I'm saying? I am forever grateful for my life and the life I've had, the one I got to have because it has made me, among a myriad of other great things, a writer with a great story to tell. And yet, my life has made me the very person I am today, which is a person who has little idea how to cut myself off from the needs of others in order to write the story that my life made me. <sighs> oh, life. You gotta love it. Now that our economy is going to the dogs Maybe we'll have flamenco music like they've always done in Spain Maybe we'll have a champion like Rafael Nadal Full of passion and the need to prove himself time and again And maybe Hollywood starts making movies that the world can love Sad and bittersweet and full of pain Raining in my dread tonight Snowing in my head And I'm waiting on my friend And a sign from the gods to come out and play Now that our economy is going to the dark And make love like I've always done in Spain Maybe we'll be like the folks in Argentina Who know how to laugh and take their showers in the rain And maybe Hollywood starts making movies That the world can love Sad and bittersweet and full of pain It's raining in Madrid tonight It's snowing in my head
dogs Maybe we'll skip the science and the math and all Become painters Maybe we'll write poems like Federico Garcia Lorca Throw away our TVs and our cars And dress like Quakers Maybe Hollywood starts making movies That the world can love Sad and bittersweet and full of pain It's raining in my dream tonight Snowing in my head Welcome back, everyone. I have no idea what song Logan just played because we're pre-recording this show today and Logan has plopped in a perfect song that will make sense of everything that has come before and that will come now because that is Logan's genius. But on to the most important segment of the day. I'm so excited about this guest. Um, my guest, Phil Quasino. He's, I have this wonderful bio here and I'm going to read it, but this is just the tip of the iceberg, people. Phil is an award-winning writer and filmmaker. He's a teacher. He's an editor. He's a lecturer. He's a travel leader. He's a storyteller. He's a TV host. His fascination with art and literature and the history of culture has taken him everywhere from Michigan to Marrakesh, Iceland to the Amazon in a worldwide search for what the ancients called the soul of the world. He has more than 25 books out there. He has 15 script writing credits to his name. And the thing that runs through all of them is the omnipresent influence of myth in modern life. Gee, do you think I'm going to have a fun conversation with this guy today? Some of his books include the titles Stoking the Creative Fire, Once in Future Myths, The Art of Pilgrimage, The Olympic Odyssey, The Hero's Journey, Word Catcher, and The Painted Word. Oh, and just on top of all that, through many of these books and many of his adventures, he has gotten to hang out with some of, in my mind, the coolest people on earth. Yes, uh, Joseph Campbell was his mentor. Uh, he has written books with and hung with Houston Smith. And one of his friends is the original The Dude. Not like the Jeff Bridges, but The Dude, The Dude, The Dude that they wrote The Dude about. Very, very fun. Uh, I was lucky enough earlier this year to go up to Pacifica. You guys know about Pacifica Graduate Institutes where I got my master's. I got to spend three days with Phil in a room full of people who are creative and, and hungry and inspired. And, and Phil took us through a, a magical three days of the creative process and the creative journey. And uh, I'm just so excited you're here. Welcome, Phil, to the show. Thank you, Kelly. It's a thrill. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I'm pretty sure that you and I could just do a podcast once a week for a year, and maybe then we would get through half of the things that we could talk about. We'd never repeat ourselves. <laughs> we would never repeat ourselves. Absolutely. A hundred percent. So uh, I was laughing because I wrote this essay today because it's really where I'm at. And you're a man who has written many books. And then you and I were speaking in the kitchen a little bit about the the, the balance between alone and uh, and social and, and how when you write a book, it's it is alone time. It really is. And that's that's can be difficult, as I clearly am sharing with the world. <laughs> well, years ago, I went to a book party that Norman Mailer was 
staging, I think it was his book on Marilyn Monroe at Tosca's, the legendary cafe in North Beach where I live up in San Francisco. And a handful of us were standing around talking about the misery of writing, as you have just so aptly described. Right. And he, I remember Mailer just threw his hand across the room like this, like he was chopping off everybody's head. And he said, it's no more than putting the seat of your pants to the seat of your chair. Mm-hmm. 6 a.m. till 9 a.m. Jesus. Seven days a yeah. week, all of his adult life. Yeah. So that's a way to demystify it. Yeah. Everybody is inspired at one time or another. The difference between us and everybody else is that there is some obsession. Let's face it. There's yeah. some obsession here, but not quite compulsion. Compulsion is, you might call it, unaware obsession. You don't know why you're doing the same thing over and over and over right. again. But obsession is single-mindedness, yeah. absorbedness, as the great poet Donald Hall used to call it. Focus, one of my favorite words. You know, I've written some books on word origins, mm-hmm. something I've been fascinated about all my life. And even I was startled to find that the origin of focus is fireplace. Wow. Isn't that splendid? Yes. Just imagine we have been sitting around fires for probably 100,000 years. Yeah. And what do we do when we sit in front of a fire in a cave or a fire in a fireplace right here, a fire in your studio? Yeah. You begin to talk. You have conversations. You lose yourself in the fire. And that's one image that allows me to put in the hours I have to. Yeah. 12 hours a day, every yeah. day, every day. But if I lose myself in reverie, which is to me one of the most important stages of this work. And it's the joy of it too. That's I mean, it. Yeah. It's losing yourself. Yeah. That's, what's, that's what this has to, um, in common with athletics, sports, yes. but also the religious life, spiritual life, travel. It's this and I'm guessing deep even, desire for reverie. And I'm guessing even Wall Street traders get that reverie. Like there's a buzz that goes on in business in some way. I mean, it's not the same reverie, but... Yeah, I wasn't in my body. Why did I invest all that money? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who invested all that money? Right, it wasn't me. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because all the anxiety that surrounds this with me, and it, and it really is about me making a a commitment and a mind shift around the world will be okay without me for the next nine months as I write mm. this book. Like some idea I have that like, if I'm not on Twitter every night, you know, the world is going to collapse or something. Uh, and, and because when I do sit down in the morning, and I have my I have two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon that I do, that's the way I do it. Uh, I'm gone. Forget it. I mean, you know, the world could be crashing around me and I'd be like, what? Huh? Excuse me? <laughs> I just need to finish the end of this sentence because I need to figure out the exact – the creative problem solving of writing is just such a joy. If you already have that discipline – two two-hour slots a day, you will probably get used to that and allow the boundaries to dissolve a little bit. Yeah. What I like to do is look at that as my sacred time. And I don't mean in any pious medieval monk sense. Mm. I mean sacred as in the highest value you have in your life. Mm. Whatever you value, it could be your kids, it could be your house, ideally it's your creative life. You put a line around that and you say, this is my inviolable sacred time. And as long as we're clear with our friends and our families, then the resentments don't start either from us towards them or them towards us. Right. You just let everyone know, 9 till 11 in the morning or 7 till 9, whatever it might right. be. And then the kids can say, mom's writing, your husband, your wife, whoever it might be. But the line has to be pretty clear. Otherwise, the jealousies, the envies, the resentments start to build. And and then it gets toxic. Yeah. And that's part of the whole legend of the art world. 
toxicity. Yeah. <laughs> Does this sound familiar? <laughs> Sounds like my parents' marriage. <laughs> my mother, I just want to go see a movie once a week with you. Can we do that? Yes, absolutely. And and it's funny, though, because I'm lucky. I mean, I have I have a husband. I don't have kids. You know, my husband totally gets it. My friends get it. They're all thrilled for me and all of that. But I have this uh, 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 compulsion, I think it is, to feel that like if I don't keep connecting to the world, then I'm going to be invisible in some way. It's it's my own personal neuroses. And gee, I don't know why I would feel invisible. I didn't grow up in the shadow of anything. I can't imagine what that's about. But anyway... <laughs> After 20 years of therapy, I get it. Uh, but it's really showing up in this. And it's funny to watch this, the crux of me having to work through this, this real individuation for myself. And, and you know, and, and I think the creative process, owning the creative process in your life does make you deal with some of your unfinished business around your relationship with the world. I was just in Ireland. I lead literary tours every year. I alternate between Ireland, Greece, Paris, and so on. And while I was there, the great Nobel Prize winning poet Seamus Heaney died. Yes. And it was quite extraordinary to be there for a month. And virtually everywhere I went, it could be the post office, it could be the pub, it could be talking to a policeman on the street. Did you hear? Did you hear that we lost our poet? Did you know famous Seamus? Seamus just died. It was this great loss. But in the arts, it's Mandela in the political world. Yeah. But in this, it was uncanny. So I picked up his memoirs while I was there. I've loved him. I, I met him years ago. And he had a definition there that has liberated me on some profound level in the, in the few weeks since I've been home. He says, call it a rage for order. Hmm. That's the creative impulse, that our mind or our soul is in tumult. It, that's tumultuous, yeah. right? Uh, you may be about your father, me about growing up in Detroit amongst all that violence, whatever it might be. There is tumult in us, and the creative personality will not sit still until it finds some order in there. Uh, and that's what art is. Yeah, You find that order in a painting or in a piece of music, in a movie script, or in a book. This is the, this is the fire behind the obsession. I cannot rest until I find the pattern. That's actually mm -hmm. behind the origin of the word. Again, I love the word origins. Create comes from this old Latin word, creare, which means to find a pattern, hmm. to make order. And then the third one I love because it really helps demystify this whole thing and it helps us avoid being elitist about the arts. That is originally create meant to grow. Hmm. It's mm -hmm. an echo of that, sense, yeah. that great old Bob Dylan line, he who ain't busy being born, born is busy dying. Yes. I've adapted that a bit for the life that we're trying to lead. Whoever isn't creating in some profound way is actually dying. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I've talked to therapists who say this could be one of the seeds for neurosis. Yeah. That if we aren't growing in our marriage, in our friendships, in our work, something starts to shrivel. So if you look at your impulse to write or to sing or to make music, whatever it might be, it is absolutely normal. You aren't just a genius. You may have genius, right? but you're not. That's very different. The yeah. Greeks made a big distinction there. <laughs> they certainly there. did. They yes. did. Never call yourself a genius, but yeah. it's okay to say, I have a genius in me. Yeah. And that's that spirit that says, 
hey, it's only 4 a.m. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yes, guess what? I'm just giving you the perfect line that you need to now wake up and write down. <laughs> and then the whole thing flows for two hours. Yeah. Does that feel right? Yeah. That there is this obsession to find some meaning. Yes. Let's say in your story. A hundred percent. in the meaning is this pattern. And that's what's so delicious when somebody looks at our movie or somebody right. reads our book. They are seeing themselves in your story. Completely. Ideally. Yep. So yep. it's not just about us. Yep. That's confessional. And only your case may be different, but I like to say only you and your mom are going to like it if it's confessional. Yeah, no, and that's what I found with my solo show. I mean, here I'm telling the story of a very unique situation, my situation with a very unique family, with this very unique father. And yet the biggest joy I have is the audience member who comes up to me and says, oh, I could so relate to what you were going through because of A, B, and C, you know, parts of it, you know, and that that for me is – is you know then there's a then there's a communion. I mean, it's so interesting to go. You have to go so inside of yourself and to own your own space and to own your story. And ultimately, all you're wanting to do is to connect to other people th- through it. You know, that's the ideal. Yeah. But there can be some confusion early on if you just say, first up, best thought, oh, what's ever on my mind, what's ever in my heart, th- mm. that's art. No. Right. That's just the dribble that yeah. comes out. The art, uh, I, I love, um, I was in the Chicago Art Museum a few years ago and I saw this gorgeous uh, stained glass window by Matisse. And there was a quote by him underneath, I paint in order to be surprised. Mm. And to me, that's the key in every great work of art. The artist, the creative person surprised herself. Yeah. Because if all you're doing is what's predictable, you know what? You're going to start getting bored with your own work and you'll start procrastinating. Yeah. It gets hard to go back if you're just echoing yourself or you're being superficial. But when you plunge, I like that, the good verb, right? Yeah. When you plunge, it's exciting. You cannot wait to get up the next morning. You can't wait maybe to share it with somebody down at Cafe Rose yeah. here, here, here in Venice. Yeah. Because that's a joy to surprise yourself, isn't it's, it? It's very true. And, and I, I mean, I find every day when I write the, you know, there's things that come out, uh, you know, you start a sentence and this end, the sentence ends in a way and you're like, wow, <laughs> I had no idea I was going to frame it like that or that word or that or that image was going to come up and and be the image. And, and where the hell does that come from? You know, because I wasn't consciously thinking of that word or that image. And Oh, that's, I mean, and I think that's why people talk about the muse so much because they, you know, it's like, what is that relationship with that part of our mind that that does the writing when you're in the shower. Like for me, if I need to work out something creatively, I get in the car and I drive. And there's something working something out for me. And you can, it's like you can feel the, the gears meshing in there. You don't know the particulars of the gears, but there's gears meshing. And then it's like it all kind of folds into some order. Well, you know what, what you're doing? It's This is Ray Bradbury's theater uh, theory, the great science fiction writer. I was so privilege. It was such a cool deal to be at a book fair with him. Actually, the LA book fair back in 2004, I was coming out with a book on the history of the Olympics, and he was coming out with his 111th science fiction book. Wow. 111 books. And I was asking him about this, and he said that the every morning I wake up, I step on landmines. (laughs) Wow. Those are the dreams. Those are the images that first pop up. Right. And those are the ones that will be the seeds for what you want or maybe even need 
to write about yes. later that day. Yeah, yeah. It's not the ego mind that gets to be in charge no, if you want to make something, if you want to surprise yourself. If you do. So his motto, I remember someone, everybody was asking us to sign books and, so Mr. Bradbury, what's your secret? And without blinking, he said, work, don't think, rest. I know. Work, don't think, <laughs> Rest. What I, I have, you know, pages here from your from your workshop. Those three, I have those very large somewhere in here because they are because you know the neurotic thinking mind would love to just think about shit all day long, and yet, yeah, you got a butt in seat. And uh, what, what what we're doing in that case is we're lulling the intellectual mind that wants to squeeze in and tell us what to do, mm-hmm. or tell us what would have pleased our eleventh grade English teacher, yes. or maybe pleased our father. Yes. Or satisfied a mentor. Once in a while, I'll hear Campbell's voice in the back of my mind, or maybe an old track coach. And that's okay for them to echo, but I can't tell, let them tell me what to do. Yeah. So the driving business, that's a very American deal. <laughs> it's it's pure, very LA also. It's, well, it's, it's pure Kerouac, the old Route 66 business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, if you think about this spectacular and barely touched upon treasure trove we have here of the letter of the journals and diaries that the pioneers kept when they were coming across country in the Conestoga wagons. There was no internet there, but some of our most beautiful, eloquent and heartfelt writing came from those days Mm. when they were, they weren't trying to please anybody else. They were trying to get down the soul of the day. Yeah. So to speak. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I, last week I, I wrote an essay and I was uh, likening uh, writing to a like a pilgrimage, you know, that there is you're heading towards some sacred space. There's there's ritual involved and there's this 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 stopping along the way. And, and, and in some ways it is a trail that others have taken before you. But no matter what, you're going to walk the trail your own way and have your own experiences in it. And, uh, and, and even the image of the pioneer, I mean, it's such a powerful image, uh, because you are no matter what you're this blank page in front of you every day, and you were pioneering into this space. I love it. I love it. I'm glad you use that metaphor because uh, some of your listeners might know I worked with Campbell and I wrote The Hero's Journey, the movie and the the book about his life. And that metaphor of the journey, which is essentially th- a th- three-part, it follows three-act structure, it follows the uh, Aristotle's old idea of drama, the hero or the heroine separates from everything that's, that's gone before, and you go counterclockwise, mm-hmm. not clockwise. Clock, clockwise is the way everybody else is going. Right. The way the rhythm of the day is going. But all stories, all adventures begin by going against the grain, mm-hmm. by becoming a social satirist like your father. Right. Or the holy fool like Jeff Dowd, the inspiration for the dude and yes. the big Lebowski. Uh, Bob Dylan in the arts, whatever it might be, you go against the grain, but that's where all the rich stuff is. Yeah. And you plummet down, you go into an underworld, you've got to conquer death in some symbolic way there. Your sense of your mortality, your sense of your limits, maybe as a man, as a woman, whatever it might be. Right. And if you are strong enough and you've got the courage, you keep going and you bring back some kind of gift that wakes up the world. Mm-hmm. I use that model to help understand what's going on in a pilgrimage, which is a, a, a sacred journey to a place that's going to transform you, like it or not. There's There are club med trips, there are business trips, <laughs> right. there are vacations to grandmas, and then there are pilgrimages. Right. And it, for me, I, I, it could be walking in James Joyce's footsteps in Dublin, but also 
going to the Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame, where I got to hold Babe Ruth's bat a couple uh. of years ago. <laughs> I, they let me down in the archives. I was doing research wow. on baseball. Wow. What would you like to... I want to hold Babe's bat. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. And I was really struck. They said, over the course of a day, you can't imagine how many people use that word. Mm-hmm. They have driven here from all over the country, and they say, I'm on a pilgrimage here to Cooperstown. Why? Because it's a sacred journey in the sense that the Odyssey is the journey that changes everything. Not yeah. all travel does, of course, but the Odyssey and the pilgrimage does. So that's the model I also used for this recent book, Stoking the Creative Fire. My sense of it is that <clears throat> maybe a small percentage, one, two, three percent of creative work can take place in one great gush. We know those stories about Mozart traveling across <laughs> Austria in a coach and uh, suddenly an entire symphony comes to him and he just knocks on the door of the coach <laughs> and the driver knows <laughs> this is the signal. So they pull off in a tavern and 20 minutes later, Mozart has a symphony. Right. Well, right. I, we know this happens, but we can't count on that, can we? Yeah. Instead, for most of us, it's a grueling journey if it's the real thing. So I laid out what I thought is a kind of map. It's not a model. It doesn't tell you what to do, Mm -hmm. but it allows you to, in a sense, look back over your shoulder and say, where am I now? Mm. Would it be a smart thing for me to take a class, find a mentor? Right. If I'm lost in the labyrinth, maybe I need a different kind of help down there. Mm. As someone who does a lot of consultation, I find many people have the talent and the courage to create something, but they are terrified about letting it go. Mm, yes. They don't know if they're worthy. Yes. That's an interesting word that comes up over and over again. Who am I? Who am I in the world? It, right. It endlessly comes up. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that whole thing about, you know, it, it, you know, having enough courage to, to let it birth itself onto something, but then, yeah, to, to bring it out into the light of day, you know, after you've been into the underworld to, to get the treasure, that's right. that's terrifying. Something that's helped me there, there's a, a pretty marvelous book called Art and Fear. It's available. Oh, in, you know this one? Fabulous book. It's available in every museum in the country now. Yes. And the authors make a, a really good case that there is a, an important distinction between approval and... Uh, what, what's the other one? Approval or uh, acceptance? Acceptance. Good. Thank you. Wow. Pulled that out. Approval is when you finish the book and you are just dying for someone to pat you on the back. Yes. Oh, please tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm worthy. <laughs> I'm worthy. Yeah. Oh, please, please. And then you have a nervous breakdown if not enough people stroke <laughs> right. you on the back, right? But ex- uh, acceptance versus approval. Acceptance is when your peers say, you've got some chops. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, I, I like your voice. Yeah. It's that, that cool little thing that another musician might say to you. Yes. Hey, you've arrived. I, yeah, I can hear. I, you've got the voice. That is different than someone giving you flattery. Sure. I think that's the higher standard. Uh, absolutely. A, a hundred percent. I know for me, uh, as I've inched my way out into the world, you know, with storytelling and and then, you know, you know, people come up and tell me, you know, the, the impact of my story on people or whatever has been great. But there's been a few key people that have been able to say, you know, you know what you're doing or, yeah, you're, you know, you're following, you know, and you're like, okay, I know, I know the trail of breadcrumbs I'm following is the right trail, you know, because you, you feel at the beginning of, you know, when you first start to acknowledge your creative impulse and to, to start to get your feet wet in that, you know, you don't know which which of these impulses inside of me, which of these intuitions are the ones that are 
going to take me somewhere and which of the ones are, you know, just blowing, you know, hot air up my skirt or something, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and it is when you, when you do follow it and then, you know, like you said, the peers come around and say, yeah, yeah. You're like, okay, that's a clue. That's a little clue right there. I'm heading in the right direction. And, and yet you have to at the same time then go, okay, then it's not about that. I got to reconnect back to me and what got me here to take the next step, you know? It can help to know that the world is always hungry for a good story. Mm-hmm. There is something like 150,000 scripts registered every year with the Writers Guild here in L.A. Only a handful of them are good. And yeah. again, I don't mean that in an elitist sense. I mean it with utter admiration for anybody who can finish oh, a man. script. Absolutely. This year, there will be 700,000 books published wow. in, in America alone. Wow. Only a handful will be remembered. Yeah. But that's okay. We can't think about those numbers. What we have to think about is reaching our our own depths. Mm-hmm. Well, what's that great line by Saul Bellow and Henderson, the Rain King? Seek the depths or else. <laughs> because if you don't, you're going to feel guilty. Oh, I could have tried harder. I could have spent more time yeah. on that. I could have honored my father a little better. Right. I think about that too. I want my father's ghost in a sense yes. to be proud of the stories I write about Detroit. Right. That's a much higher standard than the New York Times or whatever the great yes. threshold guardians are. Right, right. <laughs> whatever they are this week. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You know, um, one of the things that I um, loved that you talked about in, in – in the, I, I'm sure you talk about it in the book, but in the, during the workshop was that that need to make our mark, you know, that like I've been here in some way. Uh, I just, I so, I could so relate to that. I mean, it, it really is, and it is that's such interesting, it's that, that, that relationship between creation and death that we know this body is not going to be here forever. But I just want to know that I put a. I say the way I always say it is I want to put a dent in the universe somewhere. Nice, nice. Yeah. T.S. Eliot, I, I want to disturb the universe. Yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to hurt a little bit. <laughs> you, you know what I just I mean. want a little dent. Just <laughs> right. a little dent over there on the side. Well, a couple of things in that. The, that. the Cousineau family comes from the south of France, the Dordogne area. And when I went to the small town where my ancestor came from in the late 1600s, I was startled and and awestruck that it was only five miles from the Lascaux Caves. Mm, And I have been imbued with that imagery Ah. of the Paleolithic art on those cave walls since I was a kid. So I I went and saw a couple of the caves and of course, the the woolly mammoths are startling, and there's their shaman holding the spear, but it's the handprints on the wall mm. that I've never been able to forget. Mm. Recently, by the way, they've been doing some tests on these uh, the handprints, which are really outlines that were created by blowing a colored mineral through a, a bone wow. onto the hand, and they're. I don't know how they determine this, but they're guessing that almost all of the handprints were left behind by women. Really? Isn't that something? Yeah. Just came out in Archaeology magazine just uh, last <gasps> month or so. Wow. And yet that's the metaphor that I have chosen to use mm. to inspire myself, but also other people. Do not worry about the approval. Leave your mark. Yeah. Leave your mark. My mom is quite ill these days. Every time I see her, I try to get one more story. Hmm. I'm, I want to make sure that she knows 
people will remember. Mm-hmm. Do you know the history of uh, Aborigine art in the outback in Australia? It's a really splendid thing. These days, you can get a couple million dollars for some of this Dreamtime painting. But it only began in 1971. There was a traveling Dutch art teacher uh, tooling around in his old VW van in the outback, and he happened across this, this one very poor settlement and was wandering around, filling up with gas and so on. And he saw a couple of the old fellas, as they say there, the old fellas, who were painting on the side of a building. And he went over and he just stared at it for a while. And he said, that's really something. That's really beautiful. If I gave you some some canvas, would you paint something for me? So he did. And he took the, the, the old fellas, <laughs> made three different paintings for him and the scout the guy who they later nicknamed Mr. Pattern. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> he because he saw art in their patterns. Right. He saw something numinous in their visions, right? Yeah. He took took these three paintings to Darwin, he got a couple hundred dollars for them, brought the money back and actually gave it to them. Wow. He didn't walk away with it. Wow. And that was the start of this tremendous resurgence of Aborigine art. Now, what hooks it back into our conversation is a documentary is recently made about this. And they, uh, the filmmaker found one of the original old fellas who mm. made the first painting. And he said, when we weren't painting our visions, we weren't human. Wow. Painting makes us human again. Wow, that's fascinating. There it is. Yeah. You notice he's not saying makes us an artist. Yeah. Makes us famous, <laughs> right? Builds up my street cred. Right. <laughs> you think of all this trendy nonsense yeah. that we talk about. But that's it. You tell a story, it makes you human. Yeah. Or you ask somebody else. Ask a child. Mm-hmm. Tell me what happened in school today. Ask your grandparent, what was it like to grow up during the Depression? As soon as someone starts to tell that story or shows you a song or a painting, the inhuman part that we all resort to once in a while, yes. I'm sad to say, yes. becomes human again. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It really does. And it really explains that 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 urge, that it, because it feels so deep and so primal when you're first connecting to the creative urge. And if you feel like you're not going to be able to um, go out in the world with it, that you do feel invisible, you know, because in some ways you are, because you're saying you're not, you're not here yet in some way. Not here yet. Keep going with that. Well, and, and that, you know, that it's like the, all the rest of this is kind of, yeah, I'm a human, I'm a here, but there's something, and it is that mark, I guess it is. It's, it's that, hey, I'm making this shape and this disturbance in the force or this dent or whatever. And, and therefore I am, you know, it's a real statement of I am. I, I love that. It may be because as Arthur Danto, uh, Danto, one of the great uh, writers about art today, he has a new book called What is Art? <laughs> one of the three <laughs> biggest words, what, what is art? Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a pretty dense book, but his, his essential conclusion fits in with this. He says that essentially it, it's the human way to make meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you trust the way that someone else did it. Your father's comedy, Saul Bellow's novels, right. uh, Van Morrison's lyric songs from Belfast. If that vision is fierce enough, and I, I mean that, it's yeah. got to be fierce. It can't be namby-pamby. Yeah. Then it can convey something to you. And I think what it tells you each time you tune into this is life does matter. 
Yeah. Life does have meaning. Forget the snarkiness. It's so easy to be snarky oh, and ironic. So easy these but days. But when you lay yourself out there, yeah. uh, Van, it ain't why, why, why. It just is. It just is. It just is. It just is. Yeah. He's going in there. He's recording this thing 47 times because he thinks it matters. Yeah. And if you get that, I think that the impulse carries across and it gives you the courage maybe to do something on your own. Yeah. One of my favorite books on this is Rollo May. We probably talked about this in Pacifica, yes. his book, The Courage to Create. Yes. And I just reviewed it recently because I led a, a workshop at Esalen with Greg Chadwick, a great painter here in LA. He's done a number of my uh, book covers. Mm. And Rollo in there says that courage is the ability to go on despite your despair. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's one thing if you've got a million dollar grant from the Guggenheim yeah. <laughs> to go on. Yeah. But can you go on when you're feeling physical pain or someone bashed in your car yeah. and you can't pay for it? Can yeah. you go on anyway? Yeah. Those are actually the stories I look for and I try to remind myself every day because I have to keep going. I'm supporting yeah. a family with this. It's not a hobby. Yeah, and it's it's that that idea of eros, you know, that no matter what this thing must go on. I mean, we're, we're here. It's an energy. It's a life force. It's this thing that wants to manifest, wants to create. And, and that, you know, yes, even in despair, there's something about, there's some part of us that is alive enough to say, breakfast, <laughs> even that <laughs> urge, that yes. first urge, mm, you know, mm. and, and to be able to connect to that. And, and, you know, and, and I'm, you know, like you, I, I consult and coach people who are creative and, and, and do and run into so many people who, who, who run into that, um, you know, but, but there's these, but, you know, but there's other, there's more important things in the world to solve, you know, there's, there's hunger and there's poverty and there's this and that and this. And I always tell them, I said, yes, and there are people waking up in the morning obsessed with that. And that's their creative obsession, you know, and yet yours is this piece of clay that you must shape into something. And, and we, and it's almost like we don't choose these things. They choose us, right, you know, right. the, the, the end product wants to be born. And so it taps us on the shoulder <laughs> in some way and says, you get to be in charge of this. <laughs> Annie, Annie Dillard, one of my favorite writers. Oh, I love her. Brilliant essay. She says, even the unpublished novel in the trunk in your attic helps the world. Yeah, I love that. She, she <sighs> worked with a Bucky Fuller, who I, helped, <sighs> I did a film on Bucky some years ago, Ecological Design. And he, he said uh, that the world is always breaking down, just like us. Yes, right? entropy. <laughs> entropy. Yes. And that art is the answer to entropy. Uh, uh, Don't you love that? Yeah. And it, it doesn't mean you have to hit the bestsellers list. Right, but right. There, I think a culture is strengthened if there are people trying to do creative work. Yeah. Everything changes. The tone and timber on the street, the cafe conversation, well, the way you, you – the schools that you send your kids to. If enough people believe that the creative work – but I also mean in politics. Yes. Creative in everything. Yes. If enough people care about that, it's a strong culture. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it goes back to that etymology of, you know, creating order. You know, and that because I mean, we're talking about entropy here. I mean, we, it, we are always in every moment, things are breaking down around us. And so it is our, we have this amazing conscious mind that allows us to create order out of this stuff. And, and that's kind of our, our balance in all of this. And, and it is, it does, it creates, 
uh, it, it creates hope, you know? I also want to go back to the word you used a minute ago, the eros. Uh, I often think if you don't love the work, it won't work. Yeah, yeah. If we do our work, our stuff, begrudgingly, mm-hmm. right, it's going to show. Yes. But if we love it, you love the music. I know when someone loves writing. I can tell. Yeah. There's a kind of what, what Raymond Carver, of all people, said, uh, words lead to tenderness. Hmm. Of all things, isn't it? It was one of the last letters that he wrote hmm. before he died of, of cancer. That's a remarkable thing to say. And he doesn't mean it in a sappy way. What he means is that that tough uh, callus that we have to build up because of modern life, the yeah. rigors of modern life, can be tenderized by great poetry, by great painting, by great songs. Just, I mean, tender enough so you can have human relationships. Well, and it's so true. If that matters. I mean, because even <laughs> if a strident idea is expressed with with incredible language, there's something about it enters your body in a way that it wouldn't if it wasn't put into you know beautiful language. I mean, I think about my dad had such a gift for that because he had some big strong opinions and ideas about the world, but he would do it in such a way that would be playful and whimsical at times and and beautiful and and rhythmic, and it would enter inside of you. And of course, then the the comedy part of it, the laughter part of it, which completely opens you up to be entered. Uh, and and people would minds would be changed, worldviews would be shifting because he had used language in such a beautiful way to present these sometimes, you know, uh, not very popular opinions. <laughs> but underlying all of it, the humor, the difference between baseball and football, the the words that you can't utter on television, right? All of that was always underscored by the fact that words mattered. Yes. Oh. They mattered. Yeah. Vulgar ones, political ones. Yep. Funny ones, they matter. And that that did come across to the culture. Absolutely. Choose your words carefully or use them in a way to break open the system. Yes. I was in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, 1999. I went down with my film partner, Gary Ryan, and we took uh, 10 American Indian leaders and Houston Smith, the great historian of religion. Mm-hmm. And we put on a number of workshops at the parliament. And since we're in Cape Town, guess who gave the opening remarks? Wow. Nelson Mandela. Wow. So it's it's always good to acknowledge what's au courant, what, what's just happened in the culture. Yes. And I was four rows away from him, sitting next to the great Houston Smith. And because Houston is hard of hearing, I found myself unwittingly doing the thing I hate to, in a theater right. or a cinema, <laughs> people talking during the middle of it. But I'm trying to translate what Mr. Mandela is saying to Houston. Mm. This carried on for two or three minutes. And finally, Houston turns to me with his very elegant body language and his voice, and he says – Above everybody, so everybody, 7,000 people could hear him. Philip, it's all right. It's enough to be within the darshan of Mr. Mandela. Wow. Within the presence of yeah. him. He could also lip read. Mm. And I have a, a few ball players, perhaps, uh, Olivier on stage, Muhammad Ali in the ring. They would come closest to the intense attention that Houston had listening to Mandela that moment because mm. the day before, we had actually walked inside his cell, mm. cell number five mm. on Robben Island. Mm. And I'm getting choked up thinking about it now. Yeah, You think you talk about 
how what words matter. You know, he was sneaking out uh, quotes, passages for his his followers in the mainland. Do not let this dissolve into a bloodbath. We have to keep the peace with this. Mm. He and, and pieces of toilet paper. Wow, that he would hand to visitors who came to see him. Pieces of toilet paper. Mm. Words matter at that depth. So we're sitting there listening to him, and of course, all of us who were there. What do we remember? There's no future without forgiveness. Yeah. He's quoting as a good friend, of course, Bishop Tutu. But the very fact that he would say that for us, mm. there were a hundred different cultures who were putting on workshops over these 10 days mm. in Cape Town. And now the framework is we cannot move forward until we forgive each other. But this is cultures and also individuals. Oh, because yeah. Because we have some of that happening in our own families, oh, right? Yeah. And in <laughs> wink, this, wink. This, this American family here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's absolutely yeah, and and yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this because you know you have a, a book on forgiveness, and you you edited a book of essays from all sorts of amazing people, and um, and I was I was thinking a lot about this this idea of forgiveness, and especially because um, uh, Nelson Mandela just died this 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 week and or last week, and uh, and how. How how interesting it is in this time that we're in where there's this such a divisiveness going on in this country and it feels like nobody's willing to come together. And and I was just I wanted your take on that. Like, you know, what from from what you've studied and what you've lived through and the amazing men and women you've you've hung out with, what you know what the hell are we doing, Phil? <laughs> Well, it's a scorched earth policy. Mm. I got some insight into this interviewing Karen Armstrong, the great historian of religion, yeah. on the show that I'm hosting on PBS right now called Global Spirit. Are you still doing that? Sure. Oh, good. We just got re-upped for oh, good, another good, year. Oh, good, good, because I've watched so, all the other episodes. Oh, so good, yeah, yeah, wonderful. Four more episodes coming out in good. the next, in the next uh, couple of months. So she she said that there's one common thread between all the fundamentalist movements around the world, and that is a feeling of being besieged Uh, and left behind. Yes. So fundamentalism in Christianity, Judaism, Islam, whatever it might be. There's also a fundamentalism in science. There's a fundamentalism in politics. There sure is. They don't want to hear that, those scientists, but (laughs) there is. (laughs) It's called scientism. Yes, it is. is You know the word. You know the word. And so in in this case, the far right, my reading of it, Yes. My reading of it is that they feel besieged and left behind. Yes. And so what they're going to do is bring the house down with them. Right. You're, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> That's right. If we're not, you're I'm not. Bringing, I'm taking <laughs> right. the ball home, basically. Right. Yeah. And what they're forgetting, of course, is one of the greatest beliefs and teachings in the New Testament. Right. Because there is poetry there, and there is great spiritual teaching. Absolutely. If you don't take it literally, yes. it's, as Campbell used to say, it's a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 the metaphor is you have to forgive in order to be a full human being. Mm. The forgiveness is actually for yourself first. Right. There's an old Chinese saying, um, he who is bent on revenge must dig two graves. Yes. <laughs> and we've just seen that happen. Yeah. Right? You're digging your own grave politically for the next generation. Yeah. Because of of these 
the behavior in Congress over the last several months. Yeah. So there, so there is this this unique human thing that can happen. This forgiveness. This thing where we put down the need. Um, you know, it was interesting when I was writing notes about this. I, I came up with the. You know, there's always this obsession with. Part of you know the stalemate of things is that people need to be right. They they need to be right, and they'd rather be right than solve a problem. But I was thinking about this too. There's this other side of it, which is there's also this need to be wronged, this need to be the victim, this need to be like the, oh, but look what happened to me, and I'm not going to move forward with any of this until the whole goddamn universe lines up and acknowledges this and makes it better. And so we need to be able to let go of both of those things, the need to be right and this need to be wronged in some way. Right. You saw a little of that behavior modified just in the last couple of days as the two parties came together to approve a budget all the way through the end it's of next year. It's shocking that Paul Ryan went into a room that, that, and actually were, is compromising. That's right. Yeah. But, but he also knows that it's perilous politically yes. for him to bring the whole House of Hercules And for his down, career. Down I mean, if he, wants a, if he wants a long political career, yeah. But the other half of, of my book here, and I think it's this is a principle you'll find in all dramatic writing. You'll see it in 99 out of 100 movies as well. And that's the fact that as Mahatma Gandhi said, forgiveness is only half of the solution. Mm. There has to be some kind of atonement. And I don't mean self-flagellation. Right. It's the making of amends. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody does something wrong, if you do something wrong, you have to try to make the world whole again in yeah. the Jewish tradition, for right. example. Right, To be atoned means you try to make things one against. If you've split your family asunder or if you've split your country asunder, or it could be a baseball team with some of the bizarre behavior we've seen in sports. Yes. The selfishness that goes on there, what was one is now split, yeah. fragmented, and it it's painful. This isn't abstract. There's pain in families when there's betrayal. There's pain in a business. There's yes. pain in government. So how do you do that? Fortunately, there is this system throughout all indigenous cultures that I've ever studied. And it seems that Western Christianity is the culture that left it behind mm. because there's been this overemphasis just on forgiveness. Okay, I forgive you. Let's go on now. Right. Right. As if your wife will now forgive you <laughs> right. for sleeping around for the last 37 years. Right. Or your business partners are saying, oh, you embezzled money. That's fine. I'll give you some nice forgiveness and let's move on. No. Right. The human psyche needs more. You, a gesture has to be made. So, for example, in South Africa, the genius of Tutu and Mandela, echoed in Northern Ireland too, by the way, was that we will forgive the people who butchered us and put us into prison if they agree to make some kind of atonement. Mm -hmm. This was ingenious. Mm -hmm. It inspired similar movements in, in Rwanda, in Uganda, Uganda. Right. And that is, if you've done something, admit it, you will be forgiven. Now you have to make some kind of restitution. Mm -hmm. uh, so sometimes, let's say a, a South African soldier killed somebody, killed, killed a father. In some court cases, he had to send the children to college. Wow. Some kind yeah. of restitution. Psychologically, it's absolutely necessary. Yeah. 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 There's, it's, it's the, it's the second half of the equation. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, Gandhi's image was that the pillar of recon, the, uh, the roof of reconciliation is held up by two pillars. 
forgiveness and atonement. Right. So, yeah. Because I love that image. Yeah. Because it's it's a bit sentimental just to think that forgiveness will do it all, and I mean everything. You think of all the betrayals in Hollywood studios, for, for goodness <laughs> sakes. The music business, the publishing business. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the general notion here is let's just move on. Yeah, let's, let's just move go. on. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that, that's not right. That's yeah. not right. Yeah, that is true. I mean, I, I think about I've been watching the um, Henry Louis Gates series on PBS about the African-American experience. And it's like even if you know the history, which we all do, watching that amazing storytelling that he's doing from each era – of from from the beginning uh, to, to the present day, and you know, and really thinking about that, about this idea of how this country—that's, th- I mean, the Civil War was one big way in which this country split apart. And I don't think it's ever been really sewn together. I mean, it clearly hasn't by looking at the African American experience. That I mean, they became. You know, I mean, they were, it was just amazing to me seeing it again where they, you know, they were given, they were given everything. They were giving all their rights back and they had people who were in Washington and in Congress and they had all these rights. And then all of a sudden it was like, nope, we're taking those away again, you know, because the political breeze blew that way, you know, and, um, and I, and I think about, you know, Obama and all the issues that have been around him and people are saying, oh, it's not racism and it's not this and it's that. And, and there's this underlying stewing thing in this country that we have not talked about because there really hasn't been some formal atonement, real atonement by all of us who all of our lives were built on the shoulders of these people. Uh, and, and so it's like, will it, you know, can we ever really go forward in some way? Will race relations ever be fixed until there's that atonement that happens? Well, 10,000 years of so-called civilized culture says no. Yeah. You you cannot. You're fooling yourselves. Yeah. The cultures that have healed have had some form of amends. We did a, a pretty amazing show on Global Spirit, uh, right? interviewed the director of a film shot down in New Guinea, called uh, Breaking Bows and Arrows. And real briefly, it's a story of a couple warring tribes in which one fella uh, shot a man in a f- another tribe in another village down the river. And of course, what set it forth was this dynamic that has gone on since Cain and Abel, the tit-for-tat murder, yes. the revenge killings. Yeah. It sounds like a bull roar. Yeah. And it goes on and on and on and on. And you get the Mideast and you get but, Northern Ireland and you get, yeah. But what they, one of the elders remembered that his elders had a ceremony called Breaking Bows and Arrows and he revived it. When the modern culture, especially the Australians, came in mm. with all their mining interests and so on, what happened there happened here and so many other places. When the new culture comes in, so often you lay waste to the old rituals and ceremonies. Right. So fortunately, the elder remembered, oh, yes, we do have a ceremony for this. So what they did was disinterrate the bones of the fellow who'd been murdered, mm. wrapped them up, carried them to the village Hmm. of the bereaved. The fellow who actually committed the murder owned up to it, took responsibility. And then they had the ceremony where they handed the bows and arrows across to the family of the person who had been murdered. And they snapped 
the bows and arrows in half. Ah. And then they buried them. Wow. And in that one gesture, you could see this tremendous amount of life energy was just released. Wow. Tears on both sides. Uh, a relief on the, on the side of the man who had actually ma- committed the murder, but also relief on the other side because it's really hard to go through life with hatred. Yeah. Oh. Roiling it consumes in your heart. You. Yeah. Isn't yeah. It? This is what we have to keep remembering. Yeah. As long as you are hating the other side, it could be some of the North and South, still tremendous resentments in our country. Yeah. Can you let it go? Usually you need a ritual. Yeah. You need some ceremonial behavior. Otherwise, it doesn't stick. Yeah. It's purely intellectual. And this may be a crazy segue, but I, um, I, I do want to do it. The, the whole phenomenon of the Big Lebowski, uh, you, you mentioned Jeff Dowd, uh-huh. a, a friend of ours. It's a great mystery. People interview Jeff all the time. What the hell is behind <laughs> this? We have three-day festivals in Amsterdam and Louisville, Kentucky, and characters are dressing up as not just characters in the movie, but lines of dialogue in the movie. <laughs> it is amazing, isn't it? What's happening? What's happening? So he and I have done some workshops on this, and I, I call it the holy fool phenomena. Yes. Every, your father was a holy fool. Every culture has had, needed it to, to look through the lie of the society mm. and have some freedom there where you can actually bring that out. In places like Ireland, the holy fool or the poet was inviolable. You could not touch him or her if they made a joke about the king. Right. This is a great release system yes. in, in any culture. Yes. So in, in the Lebowski, Jeff and I have gone back over this over and over. His own motto, the dude abides. He, he signed, <laughs> you probably signed it to you, right? Yes, yes. In, in the email to you. Yeah. Well, what does abide mean? It's a very old word and it means several things. Essentially, it means stand by. Mm. The dude abides. I will stand by you as your friend, no matter what happens. Mm. There was something there. This is the this is the slacker meets Marlowe out of Chandler. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little bit of both happening in that movie. But why does it feel, have such an echo in today's culture? People are alone. Yeah. Visitors that come here from abroad will say over and over again, this is an exciting country, maybe the most exciting in the world. It's also the loneliest place. Yeah. They'll echo this over and over again. So someone like the dude, the Jeff Bridges character in Lebowski yeah. stands up. And although he may be a slacker, he stands by his friends there. Yeah. And that hits, in a, that hits a nerve deep, deep in us. Because a lot of us were doubting our friends' sincerity, right? Yeah. <laughs> the sincerity of the people in our own family, for goodness sakes. Yeah, yeah. And there is that sense of, um, you know, what this country was built on was that that rogue, that outsider, that individual. And uh, we're never quite sure who's going to stand beside us, you know, because there's always a self-interest going on just right around the corner somewhere there. So – yeah, it is. It is very, very interesting. Yeah. Sometimes I think that it's part of the power, almost the unnatural power that we give creative people in this culture. I mean, I, I love being part of it, but at the same time, we are always running the danger of being a culture of warriors. Yeah. I've just come back from Ireland where one of the loveliest phrases I know is I've been, I've had a few pints of Guinness in a local country pub and they'll say, 
Give us a song, Phil. <laughs> Give us a poem. Give us a riddle. Because it's absolutely natural. You do not have to be a card-carrying right. poet to recite a poem. Right. It's considered a natural gift. Everybody should be able to tell a story. Yes. Play some music. Sing a song of some kind. But the very thing that's created the genius in this culture, we are a nation of tinkerers. All the way back through Edison, all the way back to Ben Franklin and so on. That's our genius. Ben Franklin to Steve Jobs. Yeah. You know, with a short stop with Lily Tomlin right in the middle. <laughs> but we're also in danger of losing how to do some very human things. Yeah. Tell a story to each other. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, it's funny when you look at the YouTube phenomena – uh, I think that there is an impulse there. You know, everyone wants to, to you know, to, because we've all grown up with the big glowing screen, you know, whether it's the computer screen or the TV screen. And so that's kind of the, the world we live in. And, and everyone's wanting now to, to participate in it. So in some ways, the YouTube, you know, people like, you know, raise a fist at oh kids these days or whatever and yet that's their impulse is to be a part of it in that way you know and who knows how to you know it'll be it'll be you know uh uh instead of sing a song it'll be you know what's your link <laughs> well, there's something thrilling about that kind of communication it's it's thrilling on the other hand we're if we lose the human touch, yes, we have lost touch. Absolutely, absolutely. We need face-to-face communication yeah. with each other yeah. because that's where the intimacy and in. the passing on of information is not the same thing as passing on intimacy. It is very true. It is. It is. It'll be interesting to see how the human psyche and psyche itself manages and tries to balance all of this out. You know, moving forward with it. Yeah. it I, unfortunately, I have this image of Robin Williams in the Adventures of Baron von Munchausen. Remember, he plays the king of the moon, and he's lying right. in bed in his castle with his wife, and they start to argue, and he doesn't want to deal with the argument. Sound familiar, right? Yes, yes. And so he spins his head off of his neck and flies around the moon until that's his right. wife goes to sleep, <laughs> yes. so they don't have another argument, right? Wow, well, this this disembodied image. Yeah is something that we've wrestled with for 50 years. If you think about those images in American science fiction movies in the yeah. 50s, it's the brain in, in embalming fluid. Yeah. Is that the direction that we're going? Yeah. I, I don't think so. As, as long as we have – we're in a tremendous period of self-publishing books. Mm. Um, young kids able to make 10-minute movies. Jeff Dowd is at the forefront of this, mm. trying to help young kids t- – Tell whole stories in three, five, seven, ten-minute chunks. Mm. Uh, Storytelling festivals are at an all-time yes. high yeah. in this country. The whole genre is huge. Europe. I mean, look at the Moth, and you know, and all these, uh, even even the TED Talks. I mean, that's those are twenty-minute stories, seventeen-minute stories, basically. Oh, I had to reduce my. Three-day talk on mentorship in this 17 minutes. They actually allowed me to go two minutes further when they were doing this routine, the old Ed Sullivan off-with-your-head routine, speaking of off-with-the-head. Yeah. But those are amazing. I've gotten mail from places like Greenland in Uruguay about the TED Talk that I gave on on mentorship. Yeah. That's phenomenal when you think about it. It it is. Instantaneousness of communication right now. Yeah. And so there is a connecting going on, but it's it's not a connecting – it's not a – in the flesh connecting. It's not an eye-to-eye connecting. It's it's an idea connecting. 
What can happen though is if, uh, and it's, uh, this is what I recommend when I give workshops and conferences and so on. If you've been moved tonight at a reading, if you've been moved this weekend, if you've been moved, and I literally mean moved, it's got, it's physical. It's got to move up and down your spine like yeah. that frisson, like that shiver. Carry it on. It's up to you to carry this on. Form a reading group at home. Form an acting group. A friend of mine, Lynn Kaufman up in the Bay Area, teaches people how to write five-minute plays. Wow. It's brilliant, isn't it? You can do that around a Thanksgiving dinner if you're not arguing with your family. (laughs) (laughs) Or you can write a play about the arguing. (laughs) Well, well, yeah, we'll have a few of those. It is a play. (laughs) I think what we want to encourage listeners to do is to find your own rhythm. What is the genre that or the art form that you are on fire about. Yeah. There's no sure to what it could here. Yeah. What do you feel comfortable in? What is easy, fun, not even fun, joyful. There's got to be some deep joy in it that you do want to go back to every day. It's- What's the rhythm? Are you a morning person or at a night? My, my new book is Burning the Midnight Oil because I've been a night owl. Uh-huh. There are what early birds and night owls. I'm one of the night owls. Yes. That's where I get my inspiration. So I've collected these stories and poems that – will help those who feel a little guilty about staying up late at night. But to me, that's where a lot of the magic happens. The family goes to sleep. The city starts to sleep. Right. And this is when the spooky voices come out. (laughs) Yeah, there's this – I was taking some of the the quotes that – you were just – you're you're a quote machine, Phil, (laughs) when you taught that class. Uh, But one of them, uh, Campbell says, all creativity comes from the outlaw realm. And I think about those night owls are definitely living in the outlaw realm. And it, it is true. It is, it's so interesting that, you know, the outsider, um, the, I just, I love the dichotomy of all these ideas, but the idea that you, you know, in order that when you joyfully follow your personal obsessions, you know, Mr. Campbell called it your bliss, um, that you are setting out on a path of being an outsider, because it is your obsession. And you're, you know, and you'll be lucky, if you can get 10, 100, 10,000, or a million people to go, ooh, I like your upset what you're doing with this obsession of yours, you know, or it's impacting the culture in some way. But it it has to come from that ability to, to stand apart to give yourself permission to be the night owl if you if you need to be there find your own rhythm find your you know find that thing that no one else uh you know that shape that no one else is drawing the you know that perspective that no one else is talking about yeah i i interviewed um uh, Stuart Brand, if you remember, he came out oh, with the, the Whole Earth Catalog, yeah, one of the great visionaries great, great in the visionary. 60s. It was his idea for NASA to actually take a camera up in the shuttle, turn around, take a photo of the Earth. Right. That was his idea. Yeah. And he once talked to Bucky about this, and Bucky said, the more and more original you get, the closer you get to your own voice, the lonelier it is. Mm-hmm. You find yourself out there like these People going across the prairies in the Conestoga wagons yeah. with no one out there in front of you. They didn't have Rand McNally maps <laughs> with them. <laughs> they didn't have no. ways and no. their, their Google Maps. But the, the cap for that is, he said, Bucky said, and that's when you know you have found yourself. Wow. When you look around and there's no one left to tell you what to do. Mm. Now, Ideally, you've had some good teachers, mentors. You've yes. had some support systems up to that point to give you the courage to keep going. Yeah. But I, what I, I like to tell people who are, let's say, stuck 
or they've lost their fire in their creative life. To try this on for size. The more you become yourself and find your own voice, your flair, your talent, your genius, it may very well cut you off from your family. It yeah. may cut you off from your current friends. But the beauty of it is you will now have a whole new world of kindred spirits. Mm. Everyone who has ever written then becomes a friend. You can always <laughs> look in their books. James Joyce is a, as alive as you are, mm. sitting across the table. For yeah. me, he's that alive. Yeah. But also, especially because of the internet, uh, but I remember going to Paris, Istanbul. So I, I have found friends everywhere. If I went to places where writers and filmmakers and artists hung out, yeah. that is our community. Right. So we are alone and we're not. Does that feel right? Oh, God, There's totally. the paradox. <laughs> we can feel terrifyingly alone here. Do you know the, the origin of uh, Sean Fain, the, the IRA group? It, it means ourselves alone. Wow, I did not know that. That, that always sends a shiver to me. Yeah. Through me. That is a very political reality if you are a rebel group in any sense, in any conflict. But that is also at the heart, I think, of the, the creative enterprise. Well, and it's ultimately the heart of the human journey. Okay, yeah, right. right. Right? Because in the end, right. you die alone. You know? I mean, no matter what, <laughs> it's your your dance with death in that moment. And no one can go with you. Yeah. Ugh. One of my earlier books was a collection of famous last words called Deadlines. Oh, yeah, what a great title, man. Deadlines. And, of course, I collected these for years. Talk about obsession. Yes. But I understand what you're saying. James Joyce, one of, one of my early heroes, he's dying quite early, uh, 14 eye operations, a very painful life, but also absolutely convinced he was the greatest writer in the world and was happy to tell everyone he yeah. came across that he was. But when he died, he reached out and his wife, Nora, the mm -hmm. love of his life, was sitting right next to him holding his hand. And he looked up at her and he said, did nobody understand? Mm. So there has been this folklore wow. around famous last words yeah. throughout history. Some cultures, the Irish, this is true, the Irish and the Japanese are two. They actually practice last words. So you can say something clever or funny yeah. or metaphysical on your <laughs> deathbed. <laughs> It's a human belief. You, maybe you, if you've been there with when your parents died or a grandparent, you lean forward and you hope they can compress their entire life. Yeah, sure. Into that one moment. Well, why? Uh, George Bernard Shaw said it, it's because we talk, we spend our entire lives talking around what we really want to say. Yeah. We think we're being clever. Yeah. Think we're being smart. We may even get paid for being an asshole. Right. 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 And writing snarky things. Yeah. Most of us don't get that close. Mm -hmm. I think the ones that do are are the ones that we love. Absolutely. The ones we love. We have to play their music every day or we yep. have to read that novel. James Salter for me, Annie Dillard as an as a nature writer, mm. uh Terrence Malick in film. Yeah. They persuade me that there is another level we can always rise to. So why live at this level down here? Yeah. Yeah. Uh Beautiful. Well, I think we went full circle today, but counterclockwise, as always. <laughs> That's where the real story is. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and as we end here, uh, something that Phil 
you talk about and that I just love is the long conversation. So th- thank you for having our first installment of the long conversation here between us. Uh, such a joy, such a pleasure. Uh, like I said, we could do this for 50 more hours probably. And we shall, damn it. Uh, so thank you. Is, are you going to be anywhere in the next uh, month or so that you want to let my listeners know about? Uh, uh, Friday night, December 13th. I will be at Book Soup in Hollywood. Nice. Launching the new book, Burning the Midnight Oil, for which Jeff Dowd, the dude the from dude. Lebowski, wrote the foreword. And he will abide. And he will abide. <laughs> he will be with me, raising all manners in all nine I'm levels so of hell. I'm going to be out of town. I'm going to miss that. <laughs> but also uh, the 18th of December up at Book Passage in the Bay Area. Oh, lovely. My friend uh, has a little writing, uh, travel writing group there. Oh, send them up. Yeah. We'll be serving white Russians. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and if you wear a bowling shirt, <laughs> Jeff will sign it for you. Oh, I love that. I love that. Fantastic. That's, right. that's great. And next year, for those who like to travel and actually carry on this kind of long conversation for 10 or 12 days, I'm leading my next two literary tours to Greece and Turkey. Wow. I, I take groups every year. And we do this. We have conversations that matter for what, a couple of weeks. When are you going to Greece? What the month? last two weeks of September in <sighs> Greece. My book will be done. Maybe I'll come with you. Oh, please, <laughs> I've please, always wanted please. to go to Greece. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, my God. That would be so incredible. Hmm, mm. I might have to make that as a nice fat reward for myself. And we could have these long conversations yes, over could. there. Yes, we could. We certainly could. In a taverna overlooking the Acropolis. Yes, I'm going to see uh, the, the Elysian Fields with Persephone and Demeter. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Phil, for being here. And uh, if you want to know more about Phil, it's philquasino.net. Yes. I believe. Mm-hmm. And of course, just Google him, go on to Amazon. You can see all of his books, buy his books, watch his TV show, Global Spirit Show is amazing. More great long conversations with great minds and hearts and thinkers. And uh, Logan, uh, anything happening uh, the next few weeks for you? Are you performing anywhere? If you're in Seattle, January 3rd. Message me. We're doing a house show. Oh, house show with Logan Heftel in the Seattle area. Fantastic. And just so you all know, this was my 100th show, and I'm honored to have Phil on the show for that. And uh, what's a number? What's a number? I don't look a day over 32 shows. Uh, So anyway, you guys have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you all later. Bye-bye. Walking, the people were smoking. I shouldn't have spoken, I should have kept my cool. Sometime later, I'm doing a favor, I'm loving my neighbor, and I'm keeping my cool. Let it out. I mean, I've had this conversation with my friends. Let it out. I, I'm baffled at, at, um, I was under pressure when she came Give me what I want Or I was in the back predicting rain Give me what I want Either way I've never been the same And I will go away I will go away
and the Romans, the Creeks and the Colemans, the Whigs and the Mormons, the Japanese. I'm sorry, my brother, you fell for another. You fell for another cheap disguise. It's right in front of your eyes. <laughs> So I am here to uh, it's right in front of your eyes. do an attempt to film the time. Give me what I want. I was under pressure when she came. Give me what I want. For I was in the back predicting rain. Give me what I want. Either way, I've never been the same. And I will go away. I will go What I want and I won't stay. Give me what I want. Give me what I want and I won't stay. Give me what I want. Give me what I want and I won't stay. I will go away. I will go away. I will go away. San Francisco, California, planet Earth, the mind of God, the mind of God, the mind of God. This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio. Sir, only at Smodcast.com.